welcome back to another episode of The Final Call here on Radio Massasoit, episode number 33. As always, Andrew Fantuccio, Ben Mamaritas, and the man with the easiest name in the Zoom, Jason Snow. Guys, how are we doing today? Fantastic. Happy to be back. NBA playoffs in full form, and so are we. So here we go. Yes, they are, Jason. So, guys, let's just start off another. Let's just get in the NBA playoff where we sit right now. Let's start with opening takes, Jason. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about a couple different series over the course of the segment, but I'm going to talk, you know, my opening impression is going to be about the Heat and the Pacers series. This series isn't as competitive as I thought it was going to be. Um, we were texting in the group chat yesterday, three bench points for the Indiana Pacers, three. Terrible. And I, they don't have Sabonis, and I know that's a big loss, but three bench points, <laughs> that is brutal. So I, I think the Heat are a tough matchup for uh, Milwaukee, presuming Milwaukee wins that series. I don't know if you heard, Andrew, Orlando won a game. so um, <laughs> They didn't um, need Aaron Gordon to do it. Nope. But uh, the, the Heat, I'm going to wrap this up in a second, but the Heat have a lot of Toronto Raptors in them, a lot of, you know, tough-nosed, a lot of heavy reliant on coaching, undrafted players. And, you know, I thought that series was going to be a lot more competitive than it is. Uh, biggest takeaway for me, kind of a more broad look at it. Kind of the thing over the past few years has been, you know, the West is tough, the East is easier, right? And that's kind of what I'm getting right now. I mean, you look at the West, the West for me is much more competitive than the East is. The East, we saw three sweeps, right? And in the West, I mean, I know the we're going to get into the Lakers Blazers in a second, but it's just an interesting dynamic between the West having, you know, very compelling competitive series. And then the East has kind of just been sweeped so far. So that's kind of my big takeaway right now. So my opening take, I'm starting with Ben's uh, choice of a team that has the most pressure to win a championship, the Houston Rockets. They're exactly where they don't want to be right now, guys. I said a few shows ago, the worst case scenario for them would be for this series with the Thunder to go beyond five games and, it's going to go at least six now. Uh, there's still that Russell Westbrook. I said this because, you know, what do we know? What's been the classic trope with this team? They fade. They get fatigued. L- late in the playoffs, they don't, they just, they're tired. They can't keep up. I felt that OKC could grind this series out, and that's exactly what they have done. The Rockets needed to close this series out quick and early. They want to have any chance if they face the Lakers or the Clippers or really anyone else in the West, because I think, frankly, all their possible matchups have looked better than them thus far. Yeah, and that, that sort of play style hasn't really panned out in the playoffs in you know, years past, so for them to you know, give it a big swing, and I know they haven't had Westbrook yet, so you know, we'll wait and see to see um, how that you know, plays into the dynamic, but that series is close, and Chris Paul certainly have his revenge on his uh, old Houston teammates. Yeah, I think it's going to be different when Westbrook comes back just because he's a dynamic player and he adds so much more to that team right now. I mean, you know, having two ball-dominant guards uh, in the game is much more complex than having one. So, you know, and with Houston, it's live by the three, die by the three. And that's what we've been seeing so far. Yeah, we have. I, I just think, are we even really going to get Russell Westbrook in this series? I don't know. I haven't seen any reports that he's ready to come back yet. Uh, they might. They really need him at this point. They need someone that can kind of match up with Chris Paul really well, defend him, take it to him, and sort of be that sort of someone with that chip on their shoulder. And that's exactly what, what uh, Russell Westbrook uh, provides. 
Yeah, I think they also, you know, in terms of Houston, I think they also need kind of a guy to layer through the offense. See, James Harden, he dances around the three-point line. He never really steps in at all. You know, you see all the, you know, high-caliber teams. Lakers last night, a lot of their points came from Anthony Davis in that mid-range. Kevin Durant, seasons past, living in the mid-range. Kawhi, another great example, living in the mid-range. They need a guy to, like, layer in between the offense and not make it so predictable in a way that, you know, OKC is kind of expecting him to shoot threes. And they're, they're letting him if they're not falling. Jason, you just mentioned the uh, Kawhi Leonard, uh, who's obviously the star of the Los Angeles Clippers. What have you thought of their series thus far with the, uh, with the Mavericks? I think it's way more competitive than I thought. I mean, I think we all predicted this game or this series was going to go six or seven games. And I totally, I still believe that. I think Luka Doncic has been absolutely special. I mean, I mean, talking about 40-point games, triple-doubles, you know, that insane buzzer beater we saw yesterday, just absolutely his play has just been out of this world. And, you know, he's, he's making a case for the best player in the bubble right now. And he's only 21 years old, which just blows my mind. But um, for the Clippers, I mean, Paul George, man, what are we doing? The self-proclaimed playoff P, as he likes to call himself. I'm not totally thrilled with the idea of players giving themselves nicknames. But if you're going to give yourself a nickname, you got to back it up. And, you know, that's an interesting series because they're one shot away from being up 3-1 as opposed to 2-2 if Luka misses that shot. So, you know, it's kind of – it's a fluid situation. But these Mavericks right now are playing loose. They're playing free. They feel like they have nothing to lose. And, you know, they have no fear, no fear whatsoever. Yeah, it's gone right on par with how I thought it's going to go. I, I think, like you said, Ben, this series is a totally different dynamic. If Luca, if that Luca shot doesn't go in, we're we're having a different conversation here today. So, Luca's a dynamic talent. He he will be one of the best players in the league in a couple of years. Um, but for for Dallas, they need defense. <laughs> they, yeah. they can't just consistently give up 130 a night and expect to. You know, it, it's still early. Their championship window is not right now, and I'm sure they know it, but. Again, if Kristaps Porzingis doesn't get thrown out in game one, are the Dallas Mavericks up 3-1? I don't know. It's a lot of what-ifs. I don't like necessarily playing that game. But for the Clippers, I think we harped on the Lakers a lot for not playing well in the season games when they already locked up the number one seed. Why aren't we getting all over the Clippers? Exactly. You know what I mean? You know, I don't think we're getting all over the Clippers yet because they're just – no one's really given the Mavericks much of a chance. No one ever really thought they would. The Blazers, in their series with the Lakers, we all sort of felt like, hey, the Blazers have a shot. The Blazers kind of match up well with the Lakers. Every sort of weakness that the Lakers have, Portland kind of has an answer for it. They, have a, they, can, they know how to exploit that. So I think that's why we're not really exactly giving any grief to the Clippers just yet. But as for the series itself, it's been without a doubt the most entertaining series of the first round. I fully expected L.A. to walk through this series without much difficulty. But the Mavericks, and specifically Luka Doncic, they've shown you know they're a force to be reckoned with. They've pulled out two really gritty wins and have forced the Clippers to sort of play outside their comfort zone. Every game has been highly intense. Jason, you were right because you predicted this series was going to go seven games, and I think it might. Yeah, it's competitive. They're playing loose. They're granted they're not you know necessarily structured in a way that. They're not strategically there yet. They're not mature enough as a team to pull out gritty wins like that in situational, you know, opportunities. Um, but you kind of live with, you know, what comes with playing loose. And that means, you know, sure, you'll have Seth Curry pulling up for transition threes when maybe you don't want it. Um, sure, you'll make sloppy turnovers when, 
you know, you really can't afford to. So I, you kind of live by it and die by it. But ultimately, I think Dallas is in a good spot right now where they're confident going forward. Yeah. And as far as the Clippers and, you know, I think they're a great team. I think they're very well coached. But in terms of that last play with the buzzer beater for Luka, Kawhi was on Luka. The screen came. They switched. And if I'm Kawhi Leonard, I'm not switching. I'm the best defender on the team. I'm guarding Luka for the last shot. That's the question I had. Why did they switch? Exactly. I, I don't know. I think it was just kind of – it was a very quick decision thing. But if I'm Kawhi Leonard, I'm, I'm guarding Luka for the last shot. I don't care. I'm fighting through that screen. So the Lakers took a 3-1 lead over Portland last night. Is Portland done? Do you think they can fight their way back into the series, down 3-1? to one? They're done. <laughs> they are worn down. They, they're exhausted. Sure, it takes the Lakers hitting shots and forcing turnovers and you know hitting threes. I didn't think KCP and, and Kuzma were going to play this smoothly offensively, and that has a lot to do with it, but they are they're like a, they're like a car and the gas lights on, but they just keep driving it. Like, <laughs> like they, they've had to make like playoff game after playoff game after playoff game to even get into this tournament. Every game was a must win. Yep. And it, even that Brooklyn game, Brooklyn just got swept by Toronto and it wasn't even that competitive, but you know, that game was like a cross your fingers, bite your finger. Like, you know, it was like a tough game to watch. It was like, so, you know, anxious. I was anxious watching it. And it was so close. And then you realize that those teams weren't really competitive against good teams in the NBA. So I, I think the Lakers closed it out in game five. And it's a nice story to even get into the playoffs for Portland. But they're just worn down. They're exhausted. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. They're, they're done. And it hurts me to say because I like this Blazers team. I really do. They're gritty. They're tough. They really, really, really want this. And you can tell. I mean, like you said, these games that they were playing towards the end of the uh, the season in the bubble were must-win games. And they, you know, to their credit, they won them all. And they earned their eighth seed, right? And, you know, they stole game one. And everyone kind of was like, oh, maybe this, this Portland team is – is, you know, they're for real. But you know what? At the end of the day, the Lakers woke up. And, I mean, we saw in that game last night, it was just, it was it was a mismatch. It was just a complete beatdown. And maybe they could win another game, but I don't see it. I, just, I think they're very, they're very tired. They're exhausted. They, they've come a long way to get here. And Damian Lillard, I mean, his, his tank's got to be empty at this point. I mean, the guy was pouring in 60-point games before the playoffs even started. It's unfortunate for the Blazers, but, you know, it's, they ran into a hot team in the first round. Easy team to root for, too. Comeback, yes. mellow, Dame's carrying. Except for if your name's Skip Bayless, you, you don't root for him. But it, oh, of course. everyone yeah. else under the sun, <laughs> they're easy to root for. You yeah. know, I'm not ready to write off the Blazers just yet. I think a lot of it depends on Damian Lillard's health. We saw him uh, exit the game yesterday in the third quarter after suffering a leg injury. Uh, and the Lakers shouldn't have a problem with Portland in, in Game 5 if Dame doesn't play. But Dame's not soft. I think he'll be ready to play. I think he pulled himself out of that game last night because he kind of knew, all right, we're not winning this game. But the, the, my team will need me if we have want to have any shot in game five. So I think he pulled himself out to preserve himself. I think if Damian Lillard's healthy, game five will be one of the most competitive games we've seen from Damian Lillard in, the, in this season. I really think so. Because I don't think he's letting this team go down without a fight. As soon as I saw Gary Trent try to check LeBron, and after that, that game one where what, – what was it, game one? 
uh, LeBron scored like 10 points and everyone was like, oh my God, he's not even shooting. Like Gary Trent's locking him up. And then like, yeah, no, the series over. Yeah. They have no one to guard him. I agree with you, Andrew, that, you know, they're, like I said, Portland's a tough team. Damian Lillard's not going to go down without a fight. But in terms of like teams, the Lakers are just too big. They're too long. You know, we say they match up well, but it's like, Last night, I mean, it was just it was just a beatdown. There was nothing the Blazers could do without getting mismatched by the Lakers. And the Lakers were just running it up. And, you know, I got to give credit to LeBron and AD because those guys are showing out. You know, the, in the first game, it was kind of like, like you said, Jason, it was like, oh, you know, like, are they crumbling under the pressure? No, it was just one game. And now we see the real Lakers team that we expected. And, you know, they're one of the best teams in the league. They are, they're the one seed for a reason. Totally right. I mean, the Lakers definitely dominated that game last night. It was like a 30-point lead at halftime, right? The Lakers, they had 80 like, points at halftime. Exactly. So the Lakers dominated that game. You're so, you guys are both right when you say that the Blazers look exhausted. Of course, they absolutely do. They've fought and scrapped their way just to get to where they are right now. But because of that, because of the heart they've shown, the drive they've shown, I'm not ready to write them off just yet. And even if they do go down in five games to the Lakers, I mean, good job, Portland. You were, what, the 12th seed in the West at the start of this bubble? And you pulled yourself into the 8th seed, go through uh, Memphis to get it, just to get into the playoffs, and then you win a game against the best team in the NBA? Well, the second best team record in the NBA? Props to Portland. Props to Damian Lillard and Carmelo and that entire team for fighting, scrapping, clawing to where they are now. Because they should not be ashamed of anything they've accomplished. But, you know, obviously there are some round two matchups that have started to, you know, take shape. We kind of know what the next round will look like. What are you guys expecting from the Celtics and Raptors in round two? Um, quick reaction because we have like a minute or a half and a half left. I think it's going to be a tough series. I think... You know, these teams are kind of opposites of each other. You look at, um, you know, the Celtics have a lot of, you know, headline guys. And then you look at the Raptors, and they're starting, like, OG Ananobi. Like, a lot of guys that, like, off the beaten path, you know, you might not have heard of before. So, it'll be an interesting series. Um, I think the coaching is relatively even. And I expect it – I don't know if I can give out an official prediction yet. I haven't thought much about this. But I, I six or seven, I would say. Ooh, six or seven. I was going to say five, but I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards you, six or seven, because these teams are, you know, w- when we look at Toronto, it's like we always expect that, that post-championship hangover, right? And I personally predicted this with Toronto because they just lost their best player in Kawhi Leonard, you know, coming off of a historic season for the Toronto Raptors. I just didn't expect Toronto to really have much effect on this postseason just because, you know, they're – I was expecting the hangover to come inevitably, right? And so far, it hasn't. I mean, they looked amazing against the Nets. Granted, the Nets are not at full strength, and they're kind of beaten up, but still, the Raptors have impressed me. And, you know, Nick Nurse, coach of the year, and he deserves it. And, you know, I feel like these players are kind of playing with a chip on the shoulder, like, oh, like, people think we can't win without Kawhi. And they're out here showing up and, you know, sweeping in the first round and, I predict big things from this Toronto team, but I don't know. I This could go six or seven. I agree. I'm going Toronto in seven in this series. I think that this is going to be a very competitive series, tough fought, scrappy. 
it, it was really a toss-up. But if I have to make a choice, I'm going to take Toronto in seven because this one, this team kind of knows where how, what it takes to get there, even without Kawhi. They almost virtually have the, the same exact roster last year from last year, except for Kawhi. Also, the one thing that we kind of saw the Celtics struggle with against Philadelphia was their was size. And Toronto's got a lot of it. They got Pascal Siakam, Marcus Stahl. Those guys will both can both torture Daniel Tice down low. Can't forget about Serge Ibaka. I'm I'm gonna. It's gonna be really close. It really's gonna be a toss up. If I have to choose, I'm taking Toronto in seven. Coming up next, we'll get into the Philadelphia 76ers finally moving on from Brett Brown. They fired him yesterday. We'll give you our thoughts next here on Final Call. So this segment of the final call is brought to you by New England Sports United, written for New England by Jason Snow. Who's that? I know that's not what it is. I have no idea. He seems, sounds like a pretty good guy, though. <laughs> He's kind of crazy. Good journalism. Good under, un, under, underrated golfer. So, Brett Brown. Masters November. Yep. Count me in. I'm on the tour, baby. <laughs> this segment's already going so well. Yep. All right, Brett Brown is out of Philadelphia, guys. Sixers finally wised up and fired Brett Brown. How would you summarize the Brett Brown era in Philadelphia, Ben? Underachieved. That's how I would sum it up. And, you know, it's unfortunate because this is a team that year after year after year, they're in the lottery, getting the first or first through third overall picks, right? They got Joel Embiid. They got, you know, uh, prior to that, they got Jaleel Okafor, who just completely didn't work out. They got Joel Embiid. They got Ben Simmons. Uh, both Embiid and Simmons, their first two rookie years was injury. So they weren't able to play until later on. This is a team where on paper, I mean, we've said it on the show. We, we expected them to be in the finals talent-wise. I mean, th- this was a team that was so talented from top to bottom. You just you you knew that it was gonna be a playoff contender, if not you know contending for the NBA Finals. But you know Brett Brown, we I kind of saw this coming. I mean they did get swept. They didn't have Ben Simmons. Um, I think if Ben Simmons was playing, it wouldn't have been a sweep. I think they would have cracked a game out at least. But you know a lot of times when when a team isn't achieving what they think, it always kind of falls on the head coach. You know, but I also give some blame to the front office. I mean, the front office needs to, you know, they they whiffed on Jason Tatum flat out. They just whiffed on Jason Tatum. They got Markel Fultz. Um, I already mentioned the Jaleel Okafor thing. Um, you know, they let Jimmy Butler go. They let JJ Reddick go. So it's, you know, it was it was a lot of not turmoil, but a lot of missed opportunities in in Philadelphia that if they just handled it a little better. Al Horford's another one that didn't really work out. They kind of thought that would work out too, but you know, it just a lot of missed opportunities and so far it's just been underachieving. It was a failure, a disappointment and kind of a just a disaster. The 76ers went through the process. They drafted Ben Simmons, they drafted Joel Embiid, they whiffed on Jason Tatum. Uh Markel Fultz was a bust. Jaleel Okafor they spent big money on free agents. They were aggressive in the trade market, and Brett Brown couldn't make the pieces fit together. He failed to motivate his players. He was abysmal at making decisions late in games. The 76ers greatly underachieved Brett Brown as their head coach, and I don't really understand. I don't really know if there's any other way to summarize his tenure as the Philadelphia 76ers head coach other than just a failure, complete another failure. Strongly disagree. 
It was not a failure and it was not a disaster. Sure, yes, underachieved, I'll let, you, I'll let you have that. Sure, they were underwhelming compared to expectations, absolutely. And their draft picks have a lot to do with that. I know um, Julia Lokafor didn't pan out. Michael Carter-Williams traded him away, blah, 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 blah. Okay? But to call it a disaster and a failure, they were a disaster. They were a dumpster fire for like three years from like 2012 to, what, like 2016? Yeah, they won 10 games at one point. Yeah. For me to call that a disaster, I would need them to stay there. I I wouldn't say... The, the, if they turn out to be the Knicks, disaster. You got me. <laughs> but they were one shot away two years ago from making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. Okay. If that Kawhi Leonard shot takes one more bounce, which I'm sure it thought about doing, we're having a different story. And, and you know, Philadelphia, we would still be saying, you know, oh, if, if Ben Simmons didn't get hurt, you know, we'll give him one more year, whatever the case may be. Uh, Brett Brown's going to get the scapegoat. He's the scapegoat for this. They had no other option but to fire him. It was coming all along. He's going to get the heat. But like you said, Ben, front office deserves a lot of responsibility for this. The moves just didn't fit. I personally thought they would heading into the season. Yeah. So I maybe it wasn't a lack of, you know, I don't want to be revisionist in our history here, and I thought they were made good moves. Just didn't pan out. And I, I don't think it's a disaster. I, I think they still have a room to grow. Um, but I don't think it's a failure. So I think you're both right when saying that the front office definitely gets some blame because Al Horford didn't work out. They mm-hmm. overpaid an aging Hal Horford. They gave max money to Tobias Harris, yes. who is not a max player. But And they also just didn't – they just chose not to surround Simmons and Embiid with shooters, which is like exactly what they should do. They, But instead they kind of surrounded him with bigger wings and more like – power forward hybrids. They don't need any more of that. That's what Simmons and Embiid are. But he, just he, Brett Brown didn't get the best out of his players. Embiid and Simmons are incredibly talented. They have such high ceilings. And you saw, you know, a lot of the games where they, they're kind of just like, kind of just phoning it in, I felt. I don't think Brett, they enjoyed playing under Brett Brown. And that's where I fault him. Do I think the 76ers were set up to win a championship? No, but they should have gotten a lot closer than they ever did. There, there are a couple different coaches, categories of coaches in the league. There's developmental coaches, and then there's win coaches. Brett Brown's a developmental coach. They brought him in to kind of dig him out of the, the dumpster. So now they need a win-now coach. And Embiid, he was a little out of shape. He was winded in the second quarter of a lot of these games uh, against the Celtics. If Greg Popovich was the coach and he said, hey, Joel, shape up, you think he would? I, absolutely. Brett Brown said earlier this year, Ben Simmons, I want you shooting a three a game. It's not a lot to ask. We get like 100 possessions a game. I just want you to shoot one a three. Greg Popovich is in that room asking Ben Simmons to shoot a three. You think he does it? I think so. So I, I think it, it leads to it. And I think Brett Brown's a, a good coach. He's a solid coach if you need you know, to develop some talent, to develop some young talent. But they're in a win-now window right now, and they need a different coach. But it's not, on, it's not fully on him for the way it's gone, I don't think. So we brought up the front office. A lot of people are, try, are sort of playing the what-if game. I, Jace, I know you hate this, but we're going to do it right now. Would the 76ers have been more successful if Sam Hinkie was still running the team? Uh, probably not. I think they would have at least been much smarter with how they built their roster if Sam Hinkie was still the GM. I don't think they would have signed an aging Al Horford who weighed down this team 
He wouldn't have given a max contract to Tobias Harris. And I think he would have surrounded and beaten Simmons with shooters. Does that lead to more success? I can't definitively say. But they would have at least been in a better situation with their roster and cap heading into this offseason if Sam Hinkie was still a GM. Because he was the one who drafted Embiid. He's the one who drafted Simmons. He, this roster was built by him. He knew it, it was his vision, right? He knew what to do with that. Then you bring in Elton Brandt, and he's putting together in his vision and what he wants, but that's not the pieces he had. The puzzle pieces didn't fit, but they were trying to put round pegs into square holes, and it wouldn't work. I think at least Sam Hickey would have put this roster in a position to have a better chance at success. Does that mean they would have absolutely succeeded? No, because I still... Because you can't definitively say it is a what if. You can't answer that question definitively. But I can definitely say they would have been better off heading into this offseason than they are right now. Uh, again, I have to strongly disagree because it was Sam Hinkie who traded Drew Holiday, who was an all star, for um, a draft pick that it turned out to be Nerlens Noel, who's a, who didn't pan out. He was also the one that traded Andre Iguodala in the Dwight Howard trade to get. Andrew Bynum, who didn't suit up for them at all and got yep. hurt in a bowling accident. He was also the guy who traded Evan Turner, who was a, I know he didn't pan out to anything. I mean, he's a role, he's a good role player, but he, did, he wasn't, for a two, number two pick, he wasn't all that great. He traded him to Indiana for Danny Granger, who was injury prone, big salary, and he never played for them either. He was also the guy that drafted Julie Locafor and drafted Michael Carter Williams, who can't shoot. So it, I have, don't have any confidence in Sam Hinkie. He was the one that ultimately decided to tear this thing down to the weeds. So, <laughs> yeah, going to build a, a win-now roster, I wouldn't have seen it. And to give him the benefit of the doubt to say he would have gotten shooters, I doubt that too. I agree. I think there's, there's a reason Sam Hinkie isn't the GM anymore, and it's because you know he had that losing mentality of we're tanking for the number one pick. And that was kind of his thing. And he did that for a lot of years. And it's unfortunate because, like we keep saying, the, the Sixers have, you know, on paper, one of the best rosters in the, in the league. And they could have been contending. And if, just, imagine, just imagine for a second if they kept Jimmy Butler, J.J. Redick, these shooters, you know, these guys that can win you games. I mean, they're... I don't think they get swept by the Celtics. I don't. No, they wouldn't have been swept by the Celtics. I think to say that Sam Hinkie, you know, yes, bad moves, and those were really bad moves, but I think he made those bad moves with this vision in mind. Get a guy like Embiid, Simmons, drafted both of them really high. They were the pillars. He obviously missed on Markel Fultz. Absolutely. But I think he was the one who had this vision all along, right? Elton Brand doesn't have that same vision now. He's trying to mold this team in his own vision and his own mentality in the shape that he wants it to be. But the problem with that is the two-star players aren't built for that. So mm -hmm. at least if Sam Hinkie was there, he would have been able to build around Simmons and Embiid the way he wanted to, the way they pro he intended them to be used. I, I don't see it. He, like I said, developmental coach, Winning coach. There's winning GMs, and then there's GMs that you just have in there to, you know, clean up. 
that that roster was promising. No, like back in 2010 when it, when Hinky cleaned house, it was Iguodala who was in his you know early prime, like 26 years old. Drew Holiday, who was just an all star for them, who was a budding young star. You you had Evan Turner, who you know had potential back then, and he tore it. Like he traded for Andrew Bynum. Yeah, Andrew Bynum, who was no, like I good, good with the Lakers, but <laughs> it, it was like the Lou Williams thing. <laughs> like we made fun of Lou Williams for going to this like place for wings. Andrew Bynum got hurt at a bowling event. Come on now. <laughs> no, Come you're right. On now you're right, Jason. Bad. There were some bad trades. There were some bad. It was moves. a terrible, terrible vision. I think <laughs> you, you, you think that drafting Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons was a terrible vision. That's two good picks out of like eight different draft classes. Hey, if you're at the top of the lottery for like eight years, you're going to hit on two of them. That, it, yeah. It's bound to happen. And I keep, I keep bringing this up, but Jaleel Okafor. No, bad, bad pick. Like, Very bad pick. Man, man. Like that was, you know, he, Jaleel Okafor, by the way, fun story for you guys. When Jaleel, Jaleel Okafor was drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers, Jason, you might know this. Uh, he was in one of the draft rooms with no cameras or anything. And there was loud banging in there. Yep. You know, this story There was loud banging, like he was throwing stuff around. And apparently he was saying, I ain't going to F in Philly. Yep. Now that right there is Sam Hinkie. That is like the losing mentality. The, the, I don't want to be there. Cause it's just, you know, tank for the lottery picks basically. And um, that's kind of a microcosm of the whole situation with Philly right now. Yeah. All right. So four okay, years Jason. ago, they had uh, Jaleel Locafor, Nerlens Noel, and Joel Embiid in the same room. That's a great vision right there. They Not chose bad. the right guy. They chose the right guy, but uh, yeah, brutal. One out of three. So enough with what ifs. How about just what should? Should the Sixers give it one more shot with their current core next season, or should they, you know, kind of blow it up? Ooh, Jason. That's, that's tough. I, I, I'd have That's to see what the, what the trade market, what the trade market dictates. Um, but if you're settling for like a Ben Simmons for like a Zach Levine and more then I, I, I'd stand pat. But if you can get like a, I don't know, just throwing names out here. Like, uh, like a Porzingis type, then yeah, I'd consider it. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know where I stand on this. I, I'll give it one more year with a good coach, with a different coach. I'll give it one more year. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one more year. I'm going to say one more year with this because, you know what, Embiid and Simmons are so talented that if they can just coexist and with a good coach who, you know, like a winning, a win-now coach like you're saying, Jason, this is a team that should be in the discussion for best team in the East. It's, it's, it's just on paper, they're just that talented. And, you know, if, if, if I had to choose Embiid or Simmons, I'd probably trade Embiid just because Ben Simmons is the 6'10 point guard who can do everything. He can do everything but shoot, basically. And, you know, you, you don't really find a lot of Joel Embiid's either, but um, that's, that's a tough situation. I, don't, I, would, I would keep them both together. I would. I would keep them both together. If, if they just fall flat on their face with the new coach, then, then I would. I would definitely consider it. So the first thing the 76ers need to do this offseason is acquire someone who could shoot the ball. They rank 22nd in the league in three-point attempts per game, and they need a guy that they can rely on to consistently hit shots from the outside. That's the first thing they need to do. I also think they should explore whatever options they have left 
that they can use to sort of fix their cap. I'm not saying fully tear it down. I agree. Give it one more shot with Simmons and with Embiid. But if you're going to do that, do it the right way and surround them with the talent and the style of players that they can use and actually succeed with. Give it one more year. But if you're going to give it one more year, give it your best shot. No, yeah, no. I mean, can you just, can you imagine, like, I mean, because if, if they break up the core, right, and then a few years down the line, they're going to have those side-by-side pictures of Embiid and Simmons on, on the same team in the same jersey. And, and you know, people just getting into the NBA are going to say they were on the same team. That's crazy. They would be unstoppable. And I think that's, like, the kind of mindset that you need to have in this because both these players are so unique and they can be so dominant when they want to be. It's like, keep those guys together. You know, in in terms of dynamic duos in the NBA, like they're up there. They're up there. I mean, when they're healthy, top 10 for sure. For sure. No question in my mind. So I I, I just don't like the idea of breaking them up right now. I would definitely see how they do under a different coach and if they can both stay healthy. All right. Coming up next year on the final call, we'll get into the Baltimore Ravens cutting Earl Thomas. Ben, we know you got some strong opinions on that. We'll lead off with you next here on the final call. scoreboardtimes.com scoreboardtimes.com show your passion while you're here guys Baltimore Ravens cut Earl Thomas yesterday or on Sunday at least after he got into a fight with one of his teammates on the practice field what do you think was that an overreaction to cut Earl Thomas just for fighting or was were the Ravens right to do that so I was a little surprised but I don't think this was an overreaction and here's why this was a long time coming for the Ravens, I think. You don't just cut your all-pro safety for, for one incident. And, you know, it's, it's, I think, you know, he was late to practice and walkthroughs a few times, um, you know, and John Harbaugh is always harping on what it means to be a Raven, what it means to be a Raven. And, you know, I don't think Earl Thomas, for whatever reason, had this. Now, the Ravens, what do they like to do? They like to play inside the box and get on defenders, right? Earl Thomas isn't really, or get on uh, receivers, right? Earl Thomas is that guy who's kind of that free safety who just kind of, you know, he's looking to pick off the ball. He's a ball hawk, right? And I just don't think he fit the scheme of the Ravens and what they were trying to go for. And I think this is just a, a, a situation where, I mean, I don't, I'm not comparing him to Antonio Brown. I'm not. But with Antonio Brown, the Steelers let a lot of stuff slide before they finally let him go, right? And with the Ravens, I think, you know, there is definitely some – there's there's something a little fishy. Like, I, I mean, I was uh, listening to Pat McAfee yesterday, and he was saying, you know, it just doesn't seem like this is something the Ravens would do just off – just for one incident. I think this is something that builds up within an organization, and this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, Ben, I agree with you because this was an overreaction. Earl Thomas caused a lot of trouble for the Ravens in, in his one year there. His issues with his wife were made very public back in May. He had already been in one other fight with a teammate last year because he fought defensive tackle Brandon Williams after they lost to the Browns 40-25 to in week four. And this was just the last straw. According to reports, a lot of Ravens veterans were pushing for the team to get rid of him leading up to this. 
he didn't fit in with this team and the chemistry just didn't work. And I think for uh, Earl Thomas to not be able to fit in with one of the most respected and one of the most stable cultures in the NFL says a lot. Because the Ravens, John Harbaugh is a great coach. I think now he's, what, the second longest tenured head coach in the NFL just behind Bel- uh, behind Bill Belichick. Am I right? Is there someone else? Um, I think you're right about that. Right. Or Mike, Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin. Oh, right. But that yeah. he should he should have been fired years ago. Anyways, <laughs> you know, Harbaugh's a good coach. This team plays for him. This team loves playing for him. And uh, not that, you know, Thomas and Harbaugh had any issues, but Earl Thomas could never buy in. He never could. He had issues with with Pete Carroll, another long tenured head coach who's been great for that. For who's been great for the Seahawks. Yep. You know, I, I think this this was this was a long time coming, and Earl Thomas did this to himself. And this this speaks to the depth that Baltimore has, especially on defense. If Baltimore was like a middling team, like a like a Pittsburgh, say, and they needed him, they might be able to uh, you know tolerate some you know a dripping cup of madness and dysfunction. Baltimore, I, I'm, I'm not going to say they don't need him, but on defense, they had five pro bowlers last year. You can kind of afford to cut corners in some places. And it, to everyone you know, listening to this show right now, this masterpiece of a show, if, if, wherever you are, if you're driving, if you're in your cubicle, I'm, if I can inspire you for like 90 seconds here, this is what I'm going to say. Oh, I can't wait for this. Make Dolly yourself- Lama, Jason Snow here. Make yourself irreplaceable. Make your stamp felt. Make yourself like if the place you're at, the family you're a part of, the group you're associated with, if you were missing, make them miss you, right? Earl Thomas just didn't do that, right? Earl Thomas that, you know, Baltimore probably thought we don't really, we can afford not having him here and we can still be Super Bowl favorites. Their window's kind of now, to be honest with you. So they they don't see him as irreplaceable. They, they really no, don't. His, his no, production we, doesn't match that. I hope that wasn't as inspiring as I thought it was going to be. I liked uh, it. I'm inspired. Oh, no, that was great. I, that, <laughs> I'm ready to run through a wall right now for you, Jason. <laughs> but I, you're right. You know, this doesn't really affect the Ravens that, all that much, I think. You know, the, the Ravens' team defense last year, they were really good. One of the top, one, a top five defense last year. They won the best turnover percentage in the league, but Earl Thomas only had two interceptions. And for a guy that's supposed to be a ball hawk, you only have two picks. Yeah, I don't know. You're not doing your job. They're, it's nowhere close to what they were hoping for out of him. So really, the only place they can go from this is up. I think this doesn't hurt them. Earl Thomas is, you know, it's sad because I think he still has the talent and the ability that he showed while as a Seahawk. I don't think that's missing. He just he's lost his focus. He's lost that mentality that he once had. But this ultimately, this won't really affect the Ravens all that much. And this just speaks to the fact that he's he was playing out of his comfort zone. Like you mentioned, he only had two picks, and he's a ball hawk. Which, you know, that's that's how he makes his money for being a ball hawk. That's what he was in Seattle, right? And then he comes to uh, Baltimore, and they kind of want him to play a different style of defense. And you know, it some players can mold into that, some players can. And I just don't think Earl Thomas really was. Uh, like he's not he's not a like he can tackle right, but that's not where his where his bread is buttered. It's it's you know it's but he zone was, coverage. He, he, he was know. still playing free safety. He was still playing that deep middle. Yeah, they had him run up and play in the box a little bit more, but that's not something he he that's something he can do. 
He's not going to do it. He can't do it every play. He, it's not outside of his comfort zone, though. I don't think. No, because he's shown he can do it before. He has done it. Earl Thomas was like blatantly breaking his assignments during games and having his teammates clean up after his mistakes just so he can go out and do whatever the hell he wanted. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he's not point. playing. He wasn't playing outside his comfort zone. He was just he was just being his own coach and doing whatever he pleased. And, and that might fly in like Cleveland or like some self-esteem <laughs> wreck of a franchise. But for a real team that belongs in the NFL, that <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That that's not going to work. Yeah, and and you know part of it too could be because I'm just thinking out loud here. But you know when you got other great playmakers on defense like Marlon Humphreys and Marcus Peters and you know guys like that he felt like he had the room to like, oh, I can blow an assignment here. It's like that. maybe he's not thinking that outright, but subliminally he's thinking, you know, I got other guys on this team that can clean up my mess. And, you know, he's always been a guy. But that, kinda, that should never be the mentality, Ben. I agree. That's Do your I'm job. Saying. It's what's made the Patriots so great. I mean, obviously these yeah. are the Ravens, but the Ra- again, the Ravens have been so successful. I mean, one of the top teams in the NFL for years because of their great culture. Right, but what I'm saying is Earl Thomas can't be blown assignments because he just he wants other people to clean up his mess. That's not how the game works. It's a team game. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I can now see what you mean. Like if if he's if he's just like coasting on defense not coasting, but like taking possessions off because he knows that Marcus Peters and those boys will be will be backing him up, then that's like no, you gotta do your job. You're right. It's really funny because as the safety, that's exactly what his job is. Like that's his, a, that's job, his job description, yeah. His job as the safety is literally be the last line of defense between the offense and the end zone and not let anyone get behind him. But then he lets people get behind him. Yeah. Yeah. But th- that, that being said, he's still, you know, probably in that higher tier of his position. Am I out of my, am I out of my mind saying that? So is Earl Thomas still one of the best safeties in the NFL? I think he has the skill to be. I still think he's got the speed. He still has the ball skills. He's still great in coverage. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not there right now. And I think it says it's because he doesn't have the mentality. There's a lot of good safeties out there that are above him that have had way more production uh, than Earl Thomas in the last few years. Tyron Matthew, Minka Fitzpatrick, Jamal, Adams. Baker, Jamal Adams. Well, I'm trying to keep it more towards the free safety than the strong safety side. Oh, okay. But Matthew, Fitzpatrick, uh, Buda Baker just got the largest contract in the history of the NFL for his safety this morning from the Cardinals. 24 years old. Yep. Earl Thomas hasn't had that type of production in years. He needs to find his focus again and get back to the player he was with the Seahawks. Uh, he still moves well out in the field. He still has the athleticism. I don't think his body's deteriorated in anything. I think it's all mental for him. He's lost his, he just, he lost his mentality. He's lost his focus. He's got to find it again. And I don't, I'm, I don't know if there's a team out there besides the Cowboys that would be willing to really give him that second chance after all this. And you also got to read the statement that the Ravens sent out because they said it was conduct detrimental to the team, which means that whatever he did, you know, I mean, I know he punched the teammate, right, or he fought him or whatever, but... Inexcusable. In, <laughs> but you can't... Like, I just think that this was, if it was one incident, fine. But I think this is kind of a buildup, and then the fight was just kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back. Because conduct detrimental to the team is a lot more than punching a guy. 
in my opinion. I mean, obviously, I, I think just with what I said earlier, like the fight last year with Brandon Williams, the bad PR he brought with the situation with his wife, uh, showing up late to practice, blowing coverage assignments, purposely just you know doing whatever he felt like doing willy-nilly out in the field, even when it was against what the, the, the play call was. Earl Thomas was being kind of selfish. He thought he ran the show. He wanted this to be his team. It's not. The Ravens are a sound, stable organization. They have been for a really long time. And kudos to Baltimore. Kudos to that team for wising up and saying, like, no player, no matter what their accolades are, no matter what their resume is, is worth this. So good for them. Preserve their culture. They recognize that they need to be all on the same page. They want to make a run at Super Bowl this year. If they want to make it back to playoffs and actually win a game this year, they yeah. need to all be on the same page. And they, Earl Thomas was not with them. And Andrew, you might not want to hear this, but this might speak to the strides Lamar has taken. Because if you, like, like I said earlier, if you can talk, Ben's dancing. If, I know you guys can't see him. But <laughs> <laughs> if that team had like Blaine Gabbert under center, you're trying to surround every, like you're trying to surround as much talent around that as you can to cover that up. Mahomes, you can kind of cut corners. Brady in years past, you can cut corners. You can afford to have um, Danny Wood heads at wide receiver instead of a Julio Jones, you know, catching passes for you. Yes, it speaks to the defense, but it also speaks to the, the show that Lamar has kind of shown um, in the offseason potentially. I mean, I'm not there to see it happen, but I'm just theorizing and speculating that, you know, hey, we, can, we have a tier one quarterback on our hands here. So... I agree with that, definitely. Um, I have read a little bit about the Ravens offseason, and something that is always very prevalent is Lamar's leadership. And this, I mean, you know, he won an MVP. I mean, he still has yet to win a playoff game, but he won the the MVP, um, you know, number one on the top 100. He is still the most humble player on that team. Like, he still thinks he's, you know, that, that last pick in the first round of the draft that no one believed in. And... You don't want a toxic environment around that. You know what I mean? You want him to kind of grow into his own around a good culture. And I think the Ravens have a good culture. They have a great coach in John Harbaugh. They have, you know, great front office, great owners. So I think they're, they're set up for the next, the foreseeable future. And I think that, you know, while Andrew does aerobics over there, I I'm think getting that, up. I, I think that, um, you know, like, you still want to have, because, I mean, we don't really know how the other players are reacting to this, but um, you you want a good culture around your young quarterback who's, you know, the leader of your team. So, um, Jason, I mean, Ben just said I'm doing aerobics over here, because I am, because I got to get limbered up if I'm going to try to twist myself into a pretzel like you guys just did there. Oh, jeez. Because here's what I will say. The Ravens are one, are one of a few Super Bowl favorites this year. I will say that Lamar Jackson made some major strides last season. Groundbreaking take right there. Big trust, woo woot. <laughs> but to say that this move was entirely to help Lamar Jackson, I think is a bit of a stretch. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying entirely. I think that's what I, I'm not... I think you guys are. You just said this speaks to Lamar's leadership. This speaks no, to what Lamar no. did last year. That the he, Ravens feel comfortable. Listen. Hear that? He doesn't listen. How, <laughs> I, what? How? You were just saying that Lamar, that the Ravens cut 
is better. What I said. Huh? One second. You were saying the Ravens felt maybe they were comfortable enough to cut Earl Thomas because they thought Lamar Jackson could carry and make up for that on offense. No. I said that the Ravens have a good culture and that diluting said culture with toxic players could hinder a young player's growth, especially a player who is a leader on that team. That's what I I said. (laughs) And I said that if, you know, they probably think that he is a tier one guy because like I said, I don't know if you heard this, Andrew, Patrick Mahomes, he has enough talent to overcome defensive shortcomings. And I'm saying, I'm not saying it's an entirely move because it's not entirely because they trust Lamar. I'm just saying that they probably would be able to tolerate it more um, if, you know, they had a subpar quarterback, but they don't, they have a tier one guy and that makes that decision much easier is what I'm saying. Right. If they suck, then so that cul- they want to keep you guys the- are talking about has been there long before Lamar Jackson was on this team. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounds like to me that you guys are saying that Lamar Jackson has like brought the Ravens out of irrelevance, which is not where they were. The Baltimore mm-hmm. Ravens were a great franchise long before Lamar Jackson ever yeah. was. Yeah, that's was not what I said. A twinkle in their eye. But it, yeah, I know. That's not what I said. If you don't have a quarterback in the NFL, you're dead. No, no matter what your culture is, no matter what your team, your, your history is, if you don't have a quarterback, and especially a tier one guy, you're dead. And as far as – I'm not – like – Lamar didn't bring them out of the doldrums of in obscurity. He like they were still a good team, but what I'm saying is he is the leader of that team and when you have a culture like the Ravens that like like you said is a great culture, you don't want toxic players diluting the product cuz that can hinder a young player. I mean, Lamar's only what? 23, 24, not even. He's younger than that. So it's like you don't want players like that that can kind of you know well, Lamar Jackson wanted to break, Lamar Jackson wants the Ravens to sign Antonio Brown. So everyone does. Russell Wilson did too. Tom Brady did too. So it's not going to happen. I don't know. I, I I think when the Ravens say veteran players, I think it's more on the defensive side of the ball. They were they were pushing for Lamar, for Earl Thomas to be pushed out of Baltimore, which I don't blame him because he should yeah, have been cut. Veter- yeah, sure, veteran players, absolutely. I mean, I yeah, I agree. I think he should have been cut too, but you know, it's um, I think it's the whole locker room. And that's about all the time we have for the final call here today. Make sure to listen to this pod to uh, the final call in podcast form wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For Ben Memories, for Jason Snow. I'm Andrew Fantuccio. This has been the final call on Radio Massasoit. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say that joker to the